Exodus chapter 19, beginning now at verse 1. In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, and on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai, for they had departed from Rephidim, had come to the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness, so Israel camped there before the mountain. One of the most beautiful things about the Bible is that it doesn't just give us rules and regulations. That's what a lot of people think the Bible is. It's a great big rule book. But actually what the Bible does is it tells us a story. And we've been following the story of God's work with the people of Israel from the Exodus. How he set them free from Egypt. How he protected them from amidst the plagues. How he brought them out under the terrible judgment of the Passover, but protected Israel. How he brought them out through the Red Sea and provided for them in the wilderness. And now, up to this point, they've come to Mount Sinai. And as far as the traveling of Israel goes throughout the uh, the countryside, it's over now. They're not going to travel anymore through the wilderness all the rest of the book of Exodus. From now to the end of book of Exodus, they're at Mount Sinai. All through the book of Leviticus, they're at Mount Sinai. And for the first ten chapters of the book of Numbers, they're at Mount Sinai. And God has a work, a deep work to do in Israel throughout all their months, their year or more at Mount Sinai. But all his work began and started with this idea of God revealing himself Israel. And that's what we're going to see here in chapter 19. So they camped there before the mountain, just like God had promised Moses way back in Exodus chapter 3, because it was on this very mountain that Moses had the experience of the burning bush. It was at this very place that God called to him and told him what they would be doing. And now in faithfulness to God's promise, they had come back to Mount Sinai. But before I move on to verse 3, there's just something I need to mention. There is some measure of interest, and I don't know if controversy is the right word, about where the exact location of Mount Sinai is. Now, there's a traditional site. The traditional site is there at the south part of the Sinai Peninsula that sort of goes in between the mainland of Egypt. It's an Egyptian ground today, but the mainland of Egypt and uh, what we would call Israel. So on those two different places, there in the midst of it is the Sinai Peninsula, and the traditional site is right there on the Sinai Peninsula. However, there's some pretty good evidence to believe that a non-traditional site that's on the east side of the Gulf of Aqaba is actually a much better location for saying where Mount Sinai is. And there's a few reasons for that. First of all, the Bible tells us that Mount Sinai was in the land of Midian. And most properly, the land of Midian is on the east side of the Gulf of Aqaba, not the west side. Secondly, in Galatians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul clearly described Mount Sinai as being in Arabia. Now, there are some people who claim that the terms Midian and Arabia can also refer to land on the west side of the Gulf of Aqaba, but not many people. It's, it's not the most customary definition. Midian is on the east side of the Gulf of Aqaba, and Arabia is on the east side. And if Mount Sinai is in Arabia, it's there on the east side of the Gulf of Aqaba. And there's also significant evidence, both uh, historic and archaeological, to associate the Arabian mountain Jebel Ah Laws with the site of Mount Sinai. 
So I find it a very interesting discussion. You can find YouTube descriptions of this and videos and movies that people have made that are really of some fascination, and I recommend them to you on your own time. But wherever it was exactly, this was the place God was going to meet with his people, Israel, and reveal himself to them. Verse 3. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, there's two things that really stand out to me in those verses. First of all, I'm struck by the fact that when they came to Mount Sinai, Moses says to the rest of the nation, Okay, you guys stay back. I'm going to go up there on that mountain by myself. And I don't know exactly, but I know that if I was making a movie, and believe me, this is a chapter where you want to let the movie run in your head. If you're just making a movie of this, wouldn't you take Moses up to Mount Sinai at the very same place where he experienced the burning bush vision? I mean, we can't say it says that for certainly, but but wouldn't you think that's logical? Moses goes back to the same place where he had that dramatic encounter with God at the burning bush. And he sees the same rocks, the same surroundings, the same thing. And it just strikes his heart, Lord, this is where you called me. This is where you told me to come back to. I'm now here in obedience to you. What do you want to say to this nation? And God says, I'll tell you what I want to say. The first thing I want you to say to Israel is I want you to remind them of all that I have done for them. Look at it right there in verse 4. He says, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. In other words, please notice this. In the following chapters, God is going to give Israel laws to perform. In Exodus chapter 20, we have that section of laws called the Ten Commandments. But in the following chapters of Exodus, you have chapters filled with laws. If I could say hundreds of laws, It's going to be a law a thon, a law a rama in the following chapters. But before God gave Israel a single thing to do, he reminded them of what he had already done for them. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the exact same pattern of God's work in our life. I'll ask it to you this way. Does God have things he wants you to do? I hope your response is yes. God has things, and we're going to look at so many of those things that God wants you to do, either in specific law or principle, as we get into the Ten Commandments and the law in general. God has much he wants you to do. If I could put it this way, he has commandments he wants you to perform. There's no doubt about it. But by the same token, I want you to understand this. Before God tells you to do a single thing, God reminds you of what he's already done for you. In other words... We don't do things with God for God to win his favor, to make him nice to us. No, we recognize how gracious and good and giving he's been to us, especially in the light of all that Jesus has done. And then we set out to obey him. Do you see the difference? It's a huge difference in perspective. But I never want you to forget it because here, before God tells them to do anything, he reminds them of all that he has done for them. Now, verse 5. He says, therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the children of Israel. Okay, do you get this? First, God says, Moses, this is what I want you to tell them. 
remind them of all that I've done for them. Secondly, Moses, I want you to tell them that I am going to make a covenant with them. Now, the covenant that God made with Israel is fascinating. And we're going to look into it in some depth later on as we make our way through the book of Exodus. But I want you to notice what he said specifically there in verse 5. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. God said, Israel, I've got a covenant that I want you to keep. And this is the point I just want you to make. Just file this away in the memory banks. The covenant is greater than the law. The law is one aspect of the covenant. The covenant that God made with Israel, I would say, encompasses three main aspects. The law, the sacrifice, and then the choice of obedience or disobedience. And we'll talk about all that more later. But I don't want anybody to think that the law encompasses everything. No, no, no. God, before God called them to his law, he called them to his covenant. And law was one aspect of the covenant. But beyond that, God says, tell them all I did for them. Tell them I want to make a covenant. And then thirdly, tell them how much I love them and what a great thing I want to do among them. Did you see these words? They're staggering here in verses 5 and 6. He says, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. And then you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Those sounds like pretty good things to me. Wouldn't you love to be special to God above all other nations? Wouldn't you love to be regarded by God as a kingdom of priests and as a holy nation? This is what God promised to Israel. I will give you a special role in my plan of the ages as it unfolds. And can we not say that this has been fulfilled and is still being fulfilled? Isn't it fascinating? That this relatively small group of people, this group of people that among the nations and the ethnic groups of the world, numbers to be very small, despite their small size, the disproportionate influence that they have had on Western civilization and on the world as a whole, and especially how the Jewish people have brought forth for us our Messiah, Jesus Christ. When you put before all of that, when you wrap it all together in a thing, you see that God has blessed, that God has used, that the people of Israel have had a special role in his plan of the ages. And may I say it, continue to have a special role in God's plan of the ages. Isn't it fascinating that even today the focus of the world in so many places is put upon this little nation that's as small as a U.S. state? Do you realize you, what, you could probably fit four or five Israels in the state of California, if not more than that? It's small geographically. It doesn't have a lot of people. Yet why is it that the world focuses so much on that? Because God continues to have a special role for them in his unfolding plan of the ages. They are special unto him. Well, now, verse 7, so Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all the words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses brought back words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses, behold, I come to you in the thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. 
Okay, notice what's going on. Moses comes down from the mountain after that initial meeting from God, and, and he tells the people, okay, let me tell you now. Let me tell you what God has done for you. Let me tell you how he wants to make a covenant with you. Let me tell you how he wants you to be a special people, a special nation unto him. This is what God wants. And what's the response of the people? It's right there in verse 7. It says that the people responded and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Yeah, sounds great to us, Moses. Let's do it. I just wonder, did they even know what they were approving of? Did they even understand this obligation they were entering into with God? I don't think that they fully understood. And that's why God said, whoa, let's back up and do this again. I like what G. Campbell Morgan said about the reaction. He says, quote, their answer was sincere, but it was ignorant. Yeah, let's do it. And God says, whoa, 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 maybe that was a little too fast. Let's step back and I want to reveal myself to you more fully, number one. And then I'm going to tell you the stipulations of my law. Let's run back to this covenant thing one more time after that. Verse 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Now the hand shall t- no, not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. And when the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. I don't know if we can draw an exact parallel to this, but imagine if God was just saying this to our congregation and we lived in this area of Santa Barbara, and there were no people here. This was just a wilderness, but the geography was roughly the same. And God says something like this, well, you know what? In three days, I'm going to appear personally to everybody on the Mesa. So everybody get ready for this. It's going to happen. And we believed it. We said, okay, God, yes, we'll prepare ourselves, because you say on the third day you are going to come. So this is what we're going to do. We are going to consecrate ourselves and we're going to be ready for it. But then God says this. Well, wait, wait, wait. Verse 12, he says, I want you to set bounds for the people all around. You see, if God is going to appear up on that mountain, wouldn't there be something within us to say, yes, I want to go up there too. I want to experience. I want to feel it. I want to go up there. And God says, no, I'm going to set a fence that's a barrier between the people and myself. You're not to go beyond this barrier. As a matter of fact, if you dare go beyond the barrier, it's a death sentence. It's a death sentence so severe that I don't even want you to cross the barrier to get the guy who breaks the barrier. I want you to shoot him with an arrow from a distance. I want you to stone him with stones from a distance. I don't want you to even touch that man because it's forbidden for him to do this. But then there's a verse here that really strikes me. Verse 11, or verse 13, I should say. It says, when the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. Well, what trumpet? The trumpet sounds long. Who's going to blow that trumpet? Hold on, you'll see in a few verses. Verse 14. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not come near your wives. In other words, regard this as a special, unique time of ceremonial preparation. Seek the Lord. 
Prepare your hearts. Be ready to meet with God. Friends, I believe that there was something amazing and unique about this revelation of God that came down upon Mount Sinai for the people of Israel. But nevertheless, I think that there's some fascinating things that we learn from this. And one thing that we learn from this that we can apply to us right here now uh, in the 21st century is this idea that it's important and valuable for us to prepare ourselves to meet with God. Let me put it to you this way. I'm so pleased that you're here this morning. And might I say, I don't take your being here for granted. But whenever I stand in front of people on a Sunday morning, I'm blessed to see how many people are here and that there's so many people here coming to worship God and just to be together in the Lord and to hear his word. I never want to take that for granted because I know that there's a dozen different things that you could be doing, including sleeping in on a morning like this. And I think it's good. I hope that you're blessed by coming. I sincerely hope that. But I will say this, that your time among God's people on a Sunday could be an even greater blessing if you prepared yourself for it. And what do I mean by preparing? I mean, why not take some time to consecrate yourself, to set yourself apart, to say maybe some time on Saturday night or Sunday morning, I'm going to spend some special time seeking the Lord, setting myself apart. I'm not going to follow my normal routine, but I'm going to set myself apart, perhaps in body, soul, and spirit to say, yes, Lord, I want you to meet with me in a special way. I want to prepare myself to meet with you. Now, I trust that God would do something and have a blessing even for the most unprepared person in our midst. Maybe you just wandered in here off the street and you had no idea of preparation. You don't even know what to expect. Well, I believe that God can have a blessing for you. But how much greater if we would prepare ourselves to really receive something from the Lord. I think that that blessing would be magnified in our life. But then he says, let's get ready to have the Lord God revealed Verse 16, I'll tell you these next four verses. Some of my favorite verses of the book. Ready for this? Then it came to pass on the third day, in the morning, that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. Wow! I don't know what you say about that. On the third day in the morning, The nation awakes, they gather their manna, they're a little bit nervous because God said that he would meet them in a special way by descending upon this mountain. They saw the barriers in front of them, and at the appointed time, Moses says, okay, nation, let's come as close as we're allowed to come. There's a barrier, but let's come right up to that barrier to come near to God. And as the thousands upon thousands of the nation edge themselves forward, they do it nervously because they can see what's on that mountain. It's not just like this shining, you know, 
rainbow over the mountain and little babies with wings flying around. And there's some deer skipping around. Oh, it's the presence of the Lord. No, it's not that at all, is it? There's smoke and fire coming from the top of the mountain. It's pumping out like a furnace. There's lightning and thunder everywhere. There's earthquakes under your feet. Now, listen, when you look up at the hills here in Santa Barbara and see fire up on the mountains, what do you say? You say, hey, cool, a fire. No, you, you get a little sick inside, don't you? When you feel an earthquake under your feet, you go, hey, wow, this is a lot of fun. No, you get a little sick inside, don't you? wonder when is this going to end? What kind of damage is it doing? When you hear all of that and feel all of it, I want you to add all of that dread that would come from the smell of the smoke and the sight of the fire and the sensation of the earthquake and all of that. And I want you to add something that can't be replicated by any natural phenomenon. I want you to add something. The sound of a trumpet blast from heaven. You see, verse 19, well, 16 says it, and then 19 says it as well, that the sound of the trumpet was very loud. Moses wasn't blowing that trumpet. Aaron wasn't blowing that trumpet. Joshua wasn't blowing that trumpet. That was no earthly trumpet. That was a trumpet from heaven sounding to earth, announcing the holy presence of God there in a special way on Mount Sinai. And verse 19 tells us that the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder. And can you imagine the tension building at the whole scene until finally Moses spoke to God? What did he say? I don't know. The text doesn't tell us, but would you allow me to speculate just for a moment? Moses said, stop. Stop, Lord. The the nation hangs at a psychological thread. The stress is too much. We see your power. We see your holiness. We see who you are, and we know who we are. And the contrast between the two is too different. You know, there's too many people in our world today, they don't appreciate that God is holy and righteous, and they are not. That, 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 that somehow God, you know, I, I, do, do you sense it's a little frustrating for me to speak about this? And I'll tell you why it's frustrating, because it's hard to express, I think, rightly. Ladies and gentlemen, God loves you. He cares for you. He wants to be a friend unto you. But he's not just like this buddy that you can punch in the shoulder and be so casual with. He's a holy God. He's a consuming fire. And I don't mean that for a moment to say that he doesn't love you or care deeply about you. But there's something about this revelation of God at Mount Sinai that we need to attach ourselves to and say, yes, Lord, you are holy. Yes, you are great. Yes, there is a massive distance between God and man. And I thank you that you've bridged that distance in Jesus Christ. But I can't even appreciate how great the work of Jesus is until I appreciate how great the distance is between God and man. And that's what you've done for us at Mount Sinai. You've revealed yourself in a way that would make us nauseous if we think about it. Nauseous if we experienced it. See, because when you really understand who God is, And when you really understand who man is apart from Jesus, it should make you frightened. It should give you hesitation. So I imagine 
the trumpet blast getting louder and louder, longer and longer, until Moses says, Lord, please stop. And then what does it say in those awesome words? It says that God answered him by voice. What did he say? Well, I think he said what begins Exodus chapter 20. He spoke the Ten Commandments to the whole nation by voice, and they heard it with their own ears. Look at how it's described here in verse 20. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called to Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Imagine Moses' collar getting a little bit tighter right then. You know, Lord, a burning bush is one thing. A burning mountain is another thing entirely. You know, you, you spoke to me from the burning bush, and that was enough to make me take my sandals off in reverence before you. But you've revealed yourself in such awe and such in such presence among us. What do we do? So Moses went up, and then verse 21, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. But Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai. For you warned us, saying, set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, away, get down and then come up. You and Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. Are you getting the, the emphasis here? Don't let the people come up on the mountain. There's a fence there. There's a border. There's a barrier. Do not let them come through. It's as if Moses goes up and talks to God, and God says, don't let them come through the barrier. And Moses said, I already told them not to go through the barrier. They're not going to do that. God says, you go down and tell them again, don't break through the barrier. Why? Why? Because it's absolutely essential that they understand who God is, who they are, and the distance between the two. I, I suppose I could wrap it up right there. Let's all remember who God is. Let's all remember who we are. And let's remember the distance between the two. I suppose I could wrap it up right there. But if I did, I'd be doing a great disservice for you, biblically speaking. And this is the disservice I'd be doing for you. What happened in Exodus chapter 19 was real and and terrifying and an awesome display. It was God revealing himself to the people. No doubt about it. But you want to know the good news? God did not stop revealing himself after Mount Sinai. God said, I'm going to reveal myself to the people again and again and again. And then finally, in his unfolding drama of redemption, God said this, I'm going to reveal myself to my people most perfectly, not on a flaming mountain. I'm going to reveal myself to my people most perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ, my only son. He is a more perfect revelation of God. Now, Hebrews chapter 12 makes this exact point. Hebrews chapter 12 says clearly that under the new covenant, we come to a different mountain. That our salvation, that our relationship with God is not centered at Mount Sinai. It's centered at Mount Zion. Now, where's Mount Zion? Mount Zion is both a geographic but also a poetic description of Jerusalem. 
And Jerusalem is where Jesus died for our sins. Jerusalem is where Jesus rose from the dead. Jerusalem is where he ascended to heaven. And from the right hand of God the Father, he intercedes for his people evermore. And the writer of the Hebrews wants to make it very plain. You haven't come to Mount Sinai. You have come to Mount Zion. So just make the contrast in your own mind. Sinai on the one side, Zion on the other. Sinai, it's all about Moses. Zion, it's all about Jesus. Sinai, it's all about law. Zion, it's all about grace. Sinai, it's all about fear and terror. But Zion comes to us and speaks of love and forgiveness. Sinai is out in the wilderness. But Zion is the city of the living God. At Sinai, only Moses could come up on that mountain. At Zion... What does God say? He says, everybody can come. Ladies and gentlemen, more than thing, this is what I emphasize. If you want the symbol of Mount Sinai and what that's all about, it's a fence. It's a border. It's God saying, no trespassing. Don't come. And what's Mount Zion? Mount Zion, because of who Jesus is and what he did for us on the cross, Jesus opens his hands wide and he says this, He says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Sinai is about exclusion, no trespassing. Zion is about invitation. Come unto me, Jesus says. Sinai put forth an old covenant. Zion brings a new covenant. Sinai is all about barriers and exclusion, but Zion, it's all about invitation and inviting you to come. I don't want anybody to misunderstand me. Nobody should think that Sinai was God's pilot program and that didn't work. So he says, okay, I'll try Zion. No, 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 not for a moment. The work of Sinai is absolutely necessary and preparatory for the work of Zion. I'll put it this way. You couldn't have the glory of Zion unless you came to Mount Sinai first. Sinai, the law understanding the distance between ourselves and God is absolutely essential. You need to come to that place first. But here's the difference. God wants you to visit Mount Sinai and go on to Zion. There's too many people I know who follow God. And you know what? They live. They live at Mount Sinai. They live in this sense of exclusion from God. They live a life dominated by God's law and legalism. They believe that it all depends upon them instead of seeing the glory of the finished and fulfilled work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. It's a pretty simple message, isn't it? Sinai was a powerful revelation of God, the great I am, but God gave us a much greater revelation than at Mount Sinai the ultimate revelation of himself, Jesus Christ. So we come to Sinai. We visit there. We learn from it. But then we come to the beautiful work of Jesus Christ. Now, let me just say one thing, and then I'll conclude. This last bit is this. You might say, I don't know, but it seems to me like Sinai is better than Zion. I mean, after all, at Mount Sinai... What a thrill the people had. I mean, if you had such an experience, well, how would that impact your life? You think this way, man, if I smelled the smoke of Sinai, if I felt the earthquake, if I saw the lightning, 
if I heard the audible voice of God speak from heaven at Mount Sinai, I tell you what, I'd never sin again. Oh, would you really? I don't mean to spoil the story, but I'm going to do it anyway. Not more than two months from this experience at Mount Sinai, they're dancing around a golden calf saying, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. As necessary and instrumental as Sinai is, it doesn't transform the heart like Jesus Christ does. Don't you want him to change your heart? Don't you want to walk in the life and in the new power of a transformed life in Jesus Christ? You'll never find it at Sinai. You'll only find it at Zion. So, Father, we thank you. We understand, Lord, the necessity of the law. We understand the necessity of the revelation of your holiness and of our unholiness. Lord, it's almost as if we can smell the smoke and feel the earthquake under our feet when we consider the great distance between you and ourselves. But Lord, it makes us appreciate all the more that Jesus Christ and his great sacrifice at the cross has bridged that distance for us. And so, Lord, we look to Jesus. We choose to live, so to speak, at Mount Zion. And we say every day, let us live in the knowledge of and secured to the work of Jesus on the cross and the glory of the empty tomb on our behalf. We love you. We praise you. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.